You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. So if you brought a Bible with you, open it up to Mark or feel free to pull it up on your phone as well. And if the sermon outline helps you to follow along, that's in your bulletin as well. Well, the, the big story in American uh, religious news this week has been a uh, burgeoning revival at Asbury University in Kentucky. And I don't know if you guys have heard it on the news or on Christianity Today or places like that, but um, about 10 days ago, a group of college students had a normal chapel service, and it hasn't ended. 10 days later, 24 hours a day, hundreds of college students are uh, pouring their hearts out in worship and prayer and confession before God. Now, if revival isn't a, a concept or a word you've heard before, or maybe you just saw it in some sort of old-timey movie at some point. Um, revival in, in Christian theology is, is just an experience of the normal means of Christian worship in a more intense way or a more committed way. So it's not anything weird. It's just more committed to worship and prayer and confession. And for whatever reason, it seems like throughout Christian history, at times and in places, God has sort of given revival to certain groups of people for certain times. And Maybe that's happening in Kentucky right now. I wonder, though, as I explain that to you, or as maybe you heard it on the news, or you read an article about it, or, or whatever, how does that strike you? Does that strike you as something that could happen? Probably isn't real. Something that sort of your cynical California self is like, well, of course, Kentucky. Um, not me, but you, just in this guy. <laughs> Sorry, Marcus. Um, Marcus went to the University of Kentucky, and I, I feel bad now that I said that. Um, how does it strike you, the idea that God would do that? Is that something that seems even possible or plausible or good? That's kind of what we're going to talk about today when we talk about Mark 4. Not necessarily about revival, but more broadly, what do we do with claims that Jesus represents the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? Not just in his day, but today as well. Do, do we recognize those things? Do we notice them? Do we attend them? Do we delight in them? Or do we tend to focus more on skepticism or cynicism or guardedness? Um, are we so uh, quick to dismiss anything that could be from God that we kind of miss out on what Jesus is doing in his day and in ours? So that's what we're going to talk about in the next uh, 20 minutes or so from Mark chapter 4. So let's jump into Mark 4, 21, and we'll see, uh, see what Jesus says. Mark 4, 21, he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This metaphor of a lamp, uh, Jesus uses a few different times over the course of the Gospels to describe himself and to describe his ministry. Uh, probably the best-known version of this metaphor of a lamp comes in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells his followers, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine. Well, that's not in the Bible, but it's, you sang it as kids, right? Um, and in that context, in the Sermon on the Mount, the emphasis is on uh, sort of our culpability or our responsibility to make sure that we share the light of Christ with other people. Right? That's what the song is about. That's what the passage is about. That's not what this passage from Mark 4 is about. In Mark 4, Jesus is making a different point while talking about the lamp. He's saying that the very nature of a lamp is to shine. The, very the purpose of the existence of a lamp is that it would be seen and give light to a room. 
In this case, I, I'm convinced that what Jesus is talking about is the very existence of the kingdom of God and of his revelation of the kingdom is so that people would see who God is in the future. Jesus is making this point uh, for his day and for ours to say that there will be a time when you'll be able to recognize God's presence in this world and that he is the one who represents and reveals that presence. Now, this raises a question 2,000 years later of, is that true? Did, you know, did that happen? You know, in, in Jesus' generation, essentially he's telling his disciples, I know it seems like there are problems that the kingdom of God is not solving, but don't worry, that day will come. Well, it's been 2,000 years. Has that day come? I mean, for Jesus' original disciples, his original listeners, they would have said, how could the kingdom of God truly be here when the Romans are here, when poverty is here, when oppression is here, when people abandoning the faith of our fathers is here? How could God really be present if all these things are wrong in our world? 2,000 years later, we're kind of asking some of those same questions, aren't we? Could, could God's kingdom really be present if there is so much wrong in our world? Now, there have been some Christian traditions who've said, no, God's kingdom's not present. We're anticipating that in the future. That's when, when Jesus comes again. But, but for most Christians, uh, it's hard to say that. It, it's hard to look at what Jesus described about himself and not see that there is some evidence of the kingdom being present in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, the fact that we're here is a little bit of an evidence of God's kingdom being present, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine telling, I don't know, let's pick a random disciple, Bartholomew, 2,000 years ago. Hey, one day there'll be, uh, 2,000 years from now, there'll be billions of Christians all around the world who all know the name of Jesus, all from different ethnic backgrounds, national backgrounds, and billions, billions of people are going to be the fruit of what started out with just you and the twelve. Isn't some, some of that a very evidence of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? Uh, the theologian in the last century, George Eldon Ladd, talked about this as the already and not yet of the kingdom. That there are some senses in which this has been proven true, that Jesus really does represent the light of the kingdom coming and being made visible and being made seen, but that it's not fully uh, realized yet. For us, though, Jesus says our role is to direct our attention to where the kingdom is present, where his work is present. That's what he says in verse 24. He says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. <clears throat> this, um, essentially this proverb that Jesus is using of, the one who has will be given more, the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I don't know, it reads as kind of harsh to me. I don't know how it reads to you. It doesn't feel very fair, like, the one who has should probably give something to the one who has not, right? That's kind of how usually we expect Jesus to talk. So what's he doing here? Why, why is he talking about the one who has will be taken away? Well, he's not talking about finances. He's not talking about economic mobility or anything like that. He's certainly not talking about public policy or anything of that accord. He's talking about, I mean, just look at verse 24. Pay attention to what you hear. He's saying the one who directs their attention to the kingdom of God will notice God's kingdom more quickly, more completely, and more readily. The one who does not pay attention and recognize the light of the kingdom of God will, be, will quickly and repeatedly dismiss even what they see to the point that their faith will shrivel. And you've experienced this, I'm sure. 
You've experienced this over the course of your own life. There have been times when you have paid more attention to God. You've read the scriptures more often. You've participated in church more often. You've been in friendships that spur you on to notice God. And the more you notice God, the more you notice God, right? And then I imagine there have been times or seasons in your life where it's not that you totally lose your faith, but you just kind of forget about it or ignore it or neglect it. And during those times, your faith, like a muscle, sorts of atrophies, and it just kind of withers, and you notice God less, which means you notice God less, which means you notice God less. Jesus is saying the, the one who notices, who pays attention to what they hear, or literally in the Greek, who looks at what they listens to, which is not talking about like burning all your music or whatever, but it's talking about attending to where you put your attention is the one who will recognize and notice God's kingdom at work in this world. Um, Dennis Ockholm uh, wrote a book a, a number of years ago called Monk Habits for Everyday People. It's a really fun and, and helpful little book looking at how to apply the rule of St. Benedict to normal people like us. And in one chapter, he uh, tells this parable of two friends walking down a busy street. And uh, one of them's an entomologist, a scientist who focuses on insects. And the other one's a, I don't know, a normal human being. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they walk, the two friends walk down, and it's a loud city street, and there's music blaring and horns honking and uh, cars going past, and they're kind of having to raise their voice to hear each other talk. And as they walk down the street, all of a sudden the entomologist stops and says, wait, I hear a grasshopper. And his friend's like, no, you don't. Nobody hears anything. You can't even hear me. How do you hear a grasshopper in this busy city street? And the entomologist bends over and he picks up a grasshopper off the ground. And the entomologist then, out of his other pocket, pulls out a quarter. And he says, watch this. And he flicks the quarter in the air and it lands on a sidewalk and gives off that distinctive ding noise that we all know. And when that happens, all these people on the street turn and look at where the coin had fallen. And the entomologist said, we hear the things we train ourselves to hear. We hear the things we train ourselves to hear. And it doesn't take a long jump to think, that's true with the voice of God as well, and to recognize the kingdom at work as well. We train ourselves to hear the things that we want to hear. Um, Now, some of you guys will object to this and say, Bob, I know people who see God's kingdom at work in everything, right? They, They see the Virgin Mary in the grilled cheese sandwich. They see the devil in the battery that didn't work in their car. They see God at work, you know, like, like in, in everything. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to be that person. I don't know that that's a healthy person to be. They seem gullible. They seem naive. Uh, sometimes they seem kind of manipulative. Like, is it a good thing to be the one who sort of ascribes everything to God not in a providential sense, but in a direct sense. Am I supposed to be that kind of naive sort of person? Well, um, if, if you see Jesus in grilled cheese this morning, well, first of all, don't eat grilled cheese for breakfast. But um, second off, like, there probably are some other passages of Scripture that are worth reflecting on about being wise, being thoughtful, being uh, especially passages about not taking the Lord's name in vain and not ascribing things to God that are not God. Those are, those are worth attending to. But I would say for most of us, at least for myself and most Christians I've talked to pastorally, the challenge in our culture is not to be too naive, but it's to be too cynical. Most of us fall over on the other side of that ditch. We're not too quick to see Jesus in everything. We're too quick to see Jesus in nothing. And to dismiss any claims of God's work in this world through dismissing it through naturalistic lenses or um, 
psychological lenses or sociological lenses and sort of dismissing everything that could be God at work uh, through some other lens or just ignoring it or, or numbing ourselves out of it altogether. For most of us, we uh, are not struggling with seeing God in too much, but seeing God in too little. This uh, challenge, I think, is, is behind what Jesus is talking about in this parable of, are you willing to recognize that this really is the kingdom of God, even if it is not the most impressive thing in the world? And frankly, Jesus and 12 friends on the hill didn't look like the most impressive thing, even when the miracles came. What would you and I do in response uh, if we were in their shoes today? Well, the second group of parables in this passage comes in verse 26, and it builds on the parable of the seeds that Jason talked about last week. And last week, Jason talked about the more well-known parable of the soils. He got the good passage. Must be nice. Um, <laughs> where uh, there's the, the, the four types of soil and the different responses as a result. Jesus is going to borrow that same motif from earlier in the chapter, again here, but he's not going to talk about the soils. Instead, he's going to talk about the farmer this time. Look at this in verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, but he knows not how. Or why, Lynn, that's true too. He doesn't know why. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This parable is similar to the one Jason talked about last week. Both are about farmers spreading seeds and, and things growing, or in some of the soil's cases, not growing. But the reasoning or, or the point Jesus is making is different. In this parable, he says, did you notice that, that the farmer doesn't actually control what's going to happen? He doesn't, he doesn't cause it to happen. He doesn't get credit for it, especially in a time before there was meaningful irrigation practices or genetically modified seeds or artificial fertilizers. There's really only so much a farmer could do to, to produce a yield. He didn't have control. He just had to wait and hope that it happened. And Jesus is drawing out of that parable some similar principles for us about the kingdom of God. If you think that you're the one who is going to determine the work of God or the presence of God on your timeline or under your control or for your credit, you're in for a rude awakening, Jesus is saying. This is a challenge to our concepts of ministry success when we tend to be pretty self-referential. We want things to happen on our timeline, under our control, under our auspices, and to our credit. And when I say ministry, I don't just mean for the few of us that are pastors, but for all of us. For those of you who are parents or grandparents and want to see gospel fruit in your kids' lives. For those of you guys who are students and want to see a revival come at your campus to your friends to, hear, to see them respond to the gospel. To those of you guys who are single in faith and would love to see your spouse come to know the Lord. Or those of you who have been hoping and, and praying that one of your ministries, maybe your life group, or your Stephen ministry group, your Stephen ministry relationship, or your volunteering with, with Next Generation, would bear fruit. It's tempting to think that those things are all under our control and on our timeline and things that we can manipulate. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is not like that. It's not something that, the, that we can control any more than the farmer can make the seed, the seed yield its fruit. And a few months ago, I was in an environment uh, with uh, some other pastors uh, in our denomination. And one of the younger pastors, and probably not relevant that he's younger, but he was, uh, was kind of grilling one of the missions people, and so the, the head of our missions organization, and said, hey, you know, basically, I'd like to see more churches planted more quickly. Why are we taking so long? And there's a good heart behind that. But the missions, or 
executive put it in context that was really striking for me when he said, you know, a lot of our missionaries serve in unreached places where they'll serve 30 or 40 years before they'll see the first church planet. And I, I don't know why the 30 or 40 years really took me aback. And I looked at the history of missions and that, that is true. That tends to be what is involved, even for the most famous missionaries uh, in Christian history. We want to see things happen on a quick schedule. But if you farm on a quick schedule or you garden on a quick schedule, you end up just bleeding and, or, or drowning your seeds because it takes time. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is a similar thing. It will not respond to quick fixes or quick growth or demands that it return on our timeline or our investment. Instead, real growth is possible, but as Jesus says in the parable, the earth produces by itself, and that growth is beyond our control. I don't like that. I don't know how you feel. I I don't like that. I don't like that as a parent. I would like to have more control. I don't like that as a pastor. I would like to have more control. But as a Christian, I hold an open hand, and I am reassured that ultimately God is in control, that he is the one who makes things grow rather than me. And when that growth is real, it can be amazing. Look at verse 30. With what shall we compare the kingdom of God or what shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet when it's sown, it grows and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You might... You might know that Jesus likes talking about mustard seeds. He talks about them a number of times in the Gospels. Probably the most famous time is when he says that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it can move a mountain. Um, He uses that metaphor of a mustard seed here in a different way. He talks about how even as small as the mustard seed is, and in his environment, in his context at the time, it was the smallest known mustard, it was the smallest known seed in their region. it can produce an enormously large uh, bush or tree that could have a huge impact on those around it. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true for us, that even though the kingdom of God seems so small and insignificant at the time, and one guy talking to a couple dozen people would have seemed insignificant, it can have a tremendous impact. And he uses this metaphor of a bush that has birds of the air all into its branches. That, that phrase he's borrowing, uh, almost word for word, from the Greek version of the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 4. Um, it's, if you know the book of Daniel, you know it's kind of a weird book. Um, Daniel in the lion's den is the most normal story in the book of Daniel, and that's a pretty weird story when you think about it. Um, in Daniel 4 is when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the, the king, ha- has this sort of spiritual psychotic break, I guess, for lack of a better term, and has this vision Uh, that Daniel interprets where uh, he says that Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree and like branches, the birds of the air make their nests in them. And Daniel says, well, what you're seeing is that the nations will come and benefit from you. Jesus is borrowing on that language and on that metaphor, which is repeated in Ezekiel too, by the way, to say that that, that's the mission of the kingdom of God, that, that the nations would come and find root in the kingdom. That Americans... Canadians, Mexicans today, 2,000 years later, would come and find root in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Brazilians and Sudanese and uh, Sierra Leoneans would find root in the kingdom of God. That we get to experience today the results, the amazing results of something that started so small and insignificant 2,000 years later. This parable should give hope to Jesus' listeners, of course, as a small band of followers at the time under oppression and poverty with limited human means to impact the world. But they also give 
reason for hope for us today. That Jesus did what he said he would do. That he had the, uh, that the kingdom did produce the sort of fruit and impact that he predicted and determined that it would. And if those things are true, then he can continue to do that today and that you and I get to be part of that. And that sort of brings us back to where we started with Asbury. I don't know if what's happening at Asbury University is a, a true revival in the sense of the first great awakening or the second great awakening or the Seoul revival in Seoul, South Korea or some of the other great ones over the history of the church. Um, but I pray it is. I hope it is. And if God has done it before, he can do it again. And so I just want to leave you with a question. Like, what are you paying attention to when it comes to the work of God? Where is, what are you watching what you hear? Are you someone who is sort of quick to dismiss anything that is a claim or a recognition of the work of God? Now, if you're struggling with being too naive, let's, let's have a different talk. But if you sort of strike a chord with the sort of cynicism narrative I described, what are you paying attention to when it comes to God's work in the world? And you might just talk to God about that. Say, God, I, I don't want to be cynical. I, I want to see you at work in this world. I want to see evidence of your kingdom here. I want to pay attention to that, and, I, and I, I want to see more of that, and I want to recognize more of that. God, forgive me for my doubt. Forgive me for my cynicism. Forgive me for my jadedness. Forgive me for my distractions that, that cause me to just not even think about you. God, help me to pay attention to what I hear this week. My hope and my prayer is that for us as a church that we'd be able to encourage one another in that, that we would keep looking until we see God at work. And, and when we do see him at work, we'd point him out to one another so that our faith could be built and encouraged together. And in the process, we would delight in God's kingdom work in our generation. Well, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for these parables and these metaphors and, and how they help us um, in some really vivid ways recognize your work in this world. God, I pray for those students in Kentucky and, and what they are experiencing as revival. God, help us to not be too quick to dismiss or too quick to be cynical about your work in this world. God, help us to delight in what good you do. Uh, God, I pray for our church. May we be quick to watch what we listen to when it comes to your voice. May we be uh, avid um, and enthusiastic about hearing from you and noticing your work in this world. God, help us not to be uh, too cool or too cynical to, to give you any credit for the things you've done. In Christ's name we pray, amen.